This is Morgan Michael, welcoming you to Kindsight 101, the podcast where you'll hear from world-renowned educational leaders about the mobilizing power of kindness, together by challenging our assumptions and venturing beyond the status quo in education, we can make a big impact, one small act at a time. I've been watching the current events unfolding in the past two weeks or so, specifically related to the anti-racism movements across the world. And I feel like I have an absolute responsibility as a woman of white privilege who has a podcast, who has a voice that a few people listen to, to say something and to contribute. And I know I'm not going to get it right. And part of that honestly really scares me. However, it is my responsibility with the voice that I have to contribute actively to the anti-racist sentiments and actions and beliefs that are happening across the world and to support the people of color, the indigenous people, and definitely the black lives that matter in the world today. And so what I'm going to do over the next four to six weeks is to highlight some of the most prominent interviews that I've done with people who have been absolute anti-racist advocates through the work that they've done, and I want to just amplify their voices. And some of you may never have heard these interviews because they are from the very beginning of my podcast, and so my hope is that it may not be a repeat for you. But I think there's a lot of value in listening to their voices and listening to the voices through the lens of today's current events. There's a lot of wisdom here, and I I hope that you enjoy. Today, I want to highlight an incredible interview with Monique Graysmith, an Indigenous author here on Vancouver Island who is changing the face of children's literacy and literature by representing Indigenous girls and boys in her stories in a beautiful way with poetry and truth and honesty and with such a beautiful optimism around the topic of reconciliation. We sat down a couple of months back and had an incredible conversation about love, about what it means to truly make space for one another, and how we hold space for people when we are in privilege, and how we can use our gratitude to really stem and root into that reconciliation effort. Because it's really a big responsibility that we have to reach out and do the work. And so I hope that you enjoy this interview. So Monique Graysmith, I just want to welcome you to Kindsight 101, my podcast. It is such an honor to get you all to myself for the next little <laughs> while. <laughs> and I've had I've had the great honor of, of hearing you speak and numerous times now and have been incredibly inspired every single time. So I'm just so very grateful that you're here today. Thank you. And I'm grateful for the invitation. Mm. I want to actually just rewind a little bit 
because as we go along this conversation, I, I hope that if people are not already familiar with your amazing work as an author, as a speaker, um, as a woman of Cree and Lakota and Scottish ancestry, and all of the beautiful work that you've put forth in terms of you know reconciliation, resilience through your children's books, through your teaching manuals, um, I want to go back, though, to a moment when you sort of stepped out of the life that you were living and into your potential or your purpose. I think many of us are living out kind of our lives, but we're not always tuned into that greater purpose, I guess. And so I guess I want to rewind to that point when you were a psychiatric nurse, you were working in a deficit model of medical care, and you found yourself seeking and you applied to that social work program. And something pretty remarkable happened during the panel interview. And every time you tell the story, I just pull something else out of it. So I'd love for you to maybe go back to that time and tell us a little bit about someone who spoke your future. Mm-hmm. Thank you. I was, I was working as a psychiatric nurse, <clears throat> excuse me, in a acute psychiatry in a town called Camps where I mostly grew up. And I was you know how when you're just not in the flow and you're doing what you've been trained to do, but it it just isn't it isn't right. It's paying the bills. It's paying the bills well. It, on the outside, it would look like you've got it all together, but inside, there's a discord that's happening and unfolding really quickly. And so I applied to the University of Victoria to their School of Social Work, and part of that process was you had to write a personal statement. And once that got accepted, then I got invited down for an interview. And I can remember when I walked into the interview, I had never been in a panel interview before. And there sat five women and I was totally intimidated. (laughs) But it was like a force pushed me into my chair and I sat down and I went through the interview and I got up and I was about to leave and I had my hand on the door. And one of those women said to me, I look forward to reading your book one day. And I didn't think she was talking to me. At that point, I was only six months sober, and I hadn't graduated from high school. Even though I'd gone back and gotten my grade 12 and then went on to nursing school, I still had a whole bundle of self-depreciating thoughts and beliefs about myself and my potential. And so I continued to open that door. And she said, no, wait, Monique, I'm talking to you. Hmm. I look forward to reading your book one day. And I got out of that room as fast as I could (laughs) because what she was saying was so far out of the reality of who I thought I could be in the world. And yet it was like a seed got planted. And with that also, there was a spark that happened, a spark that like shed light on a gift that I had never thought about before. Even though as a kid, my dad always used to say to me, now Monique, Did that really happen or is that one of your stories? (laughs) And it was often a story. And, you know, I would put on write plays and put on plays when we had family gatherings, all those things. But nobody had specifically said anything to me that helped me to identify that that was actually a gift. Mm. And so that comment changed my life. And it wasn't until over 20 years later that I actually started to write But I remember that comment quite frequently every year, you know, in those quiet times when we were reflective and it would come back to me and I would be like, wow, 
well, what would I write about? That was always my question. What would I write about? Mm. Yeah. So that changed my life, those words. And, and it's an old teaching, you know, in, in our Cree ways that we speak future for people so that people and all of the ancestors in the universe can come in alignment to make things unfold for that future, for that individual especially when it's about their gift and when it's about how that gift can be used to contribute to the wellness of the world. Mm, beautiful. I, I think about that intuitive piece and I think sometimes it's really, really hard to see ourselves as having talents or gifts or some kind of offering to the world. And as you mentioned, you were six months sober, is that correct? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so what what do you wish you could have said to you in that moment that might have enabled you to sort of shed the limiting beliefs that you did have about yourself considering mm. your situation oh my goodness <laughs> <laughs> i think it would be be patient and spend more time outside on the land and by the water mm. I think those would have been because I was at that time trying so hard to prove myself, right? Because I had all of these self-depreciating beliefs as a very young alcoholic. And, you know, there were multiple reasons why that began at the age of 11. And so with that, though, it created a sense of having to prove myself. And I think that if I was able to, I'd go back and, and just say, just be gentle just go outside, pay attention, and be present, and have and do the work too, but have faith that all good things in their rightful time. Mm. I didn't have a lot of patience, and and it still is not one of the things. It's something I have to work on still, mm. like yeah. having a goal and wanting it right now, kind of thing, or wanting that to manifest quickly. Pretty much, yeah, yeah. <laughs> The reason I ask is because I definitely feel very similar in my own my own journey. So that's comforting maybe in some respects because I think of you as a very grounded, very wise person. I think when I first when I first heard you speak, your words brought me to tears and it felt like you were speaking right to my heart. And I think that's definitely one of your gifts and you embed your your teaching within stories. And I know that at one point you talked about this intuitive voice that we have and that there's this progression of the way that it speaks to us. And I love your metaphor and I'm not going to take it from you, but I'd love you to sort of fast forward to 20 years after that, that panel interview and how perhaps, perhaps that intuitive voice became louder and louder and, and what sort of made you finally listen. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I use that analogy, right, that, that our intuition is like pebbles. We get pebbles, and then we get rocks, and then we get boulders. And if we're still not listening, then we get bricks. <laughs> and I've been getting messages all those years about writing, and, and stories had been coming, and I hasn't, wasn't capturing them. And, and I really believe, as a creative person, that stories, you know, and those who create music or those, you know, however we create – the ideas come, and if we don't pay attention to those ideas and respect the gift of them, then they go on to somebody else. So there was ideas coming, but I wasn't capturing them. I wasn't giving them that respect, so they were going on to somebody else. 
And then I got a brick and I got pneumonia and that was the form of the brick. And I had been in Toronto for work and I had gotten this message from ancestors. I was at, on a massage table and I had my head in that donut and these ancestors were coming in and they were saying, write the book. We've been <laughs> telling you to write the book. And they had been, that's been all those messages. And, you know, I know for some people listening, they're like, oh, so like she hears people or sees people. And, <laughs> but they were so present, Morgan, like, mm. They were really present saying like you're in this because, you know, when you go for a massage and you're in that or any sacred space by the ocean, by the river, sometimes in church, like there's so many sacred places in our world. Mm -hmm. They can be in the middle of the mall on a crazy Christmas, December 23rd day. <laughs> right? We can still create that sacredness. Mm -hmm. And in that time, the messages come or or the visions or the auditory information comes as a download and, and no other better way to describe it. And, and so that's what happened in that massage was these messages. And the next day I was at a conference and I was giving a presentation on Canada's history and the legislations that have uh, profoundly impacted the wellness of Indigenous people and the relationships between Indigenous people and non-Indigenous people in this country that we call Canada. And after I was done, this gentleman came from the very back of the room right up. It's like, just like almost like he marched right up and he said to me, have you ever thought about writing a book? Mm -hmm. <laughs> so those were like the last two messages, um, like really close together. And then as I came home from that trip, I wasn't feeling well. And, and you know, when you're not, you can, when you feel the flu or something come on, like within five hours is a big difference. Mm hmm and that flight home from Toronto, there was a big difference when I landed and I had pneumonia. Mm. And after the 10 days of antibiotics, I wasn't feeling better. So I'd gone back to the doctor and they'd sent me for x-rays. And later that day, the doctor's office called and had my partner and I go in. And he showed us that in my right lung, there was a toonie sized tumor and weird tentacles coming off of it. Mm. And he said, we don't know what this is, and we don't know, because of where it is, we can't do a biopsy. So our recommendation is to remove it as soon as possible. Wow. So I did. I had it removed, and because of where it was in my lung, they had to take half of my lung. And I lied in bed for three weeks, and I wrote, and I wrote, and I wrote. Can I interrupt you? Like, yes. Okay. So you get this news. Did you immediately pick up the pen or did you have a moment of like deep despair I mean th there's so much that you probably didn't know it like how were you feeling at the time though Before terrified yeah and I was terrified because you know how I said we get those pebbles rocks and the bricks well the whole brick wall had come down for me Morgan right and I knew that if I didn't listen to the messages that I might not get another chance, that this was like a huge warning and a wake up call. Right. And so as soon as I was sort of well enough to sit up in bed at home, I pulled out my laptop and I just started any, any time that I was present enough, because I was also on a lot of medication at first. Um, anytime that I was present and cognitive enough, I was writing hmm. And over the three weeks, I wrote quite a bit, but it was time to return back to, I was working at that time as um, the National Indigenous Advisor for Roots of Empathy, and it was time to return back to work, and, and I wasn't done writing. Hmm. 
And so I knew that I had to make a decision. Do I go back to what I've always done? Or do I do something dramatically different, take a huge leap of faith, and listen to the messages? So I ha- my partner and I had a long conversation. I resigned from my job at Roots of Empathy. I gave up a couple other contracts. We cashed in our savings. I sold my car. We bought a minivan. Like, we did all kinds of things so that I could write. Mm. And um, and that was the very first self-published novel that then became a published novel called Tilly, A Story of Hope and Resilience. Mm. And that was the first book I had come out. And it, you know, unbeen- I had written it, Morgan, for in my mind as I was writing it. It was medicine to write mm-hmm. uh, because it's loosely based on my life. But I was also writing it for sort of 60 plus years of age to read. Uh, individuals who grew up in a time in Canada where the legislation really had uh, Indigenous people in a place of serious oppression and stereotypes and colonization, like so much was happening. Mm. And I just wanted it to be a gentle door opener for them to begin to understand Canada's history and its impact in a different way. Mm. I never saw it as a book for young people until it won the Bird Award for First Nations, Métis, and Inuit Literature, which is a national award. And then it changed everything. It actually changed everything for my whole life. Like that award and the fact that 2,500 books went into schools across the country, mostly schools on reserve mm. and our friendship centers. But it also opened doors for me to be published by people who probably otherwise would not have even looked at anything I sent them. <laughs> right. Yeah. Like gave you that credibility on a grand scale. Yeah. And I, I guess I want to touch on that fact that I know with many of your other books, and you've said this about My Heart Fills with Happiness, that that book has an Indigenous girl depicted on the front, beautiful imagery by Julie Flett. And I think at one point you said something like 1% of books that are put out into the world, even Canadian books that were, I think, um, highlighted for certain prize prizes were like depicted Indigenous females on the front. And so tell me about your hope for these books in terms of how how Indigenous girls and boys and, and youth are storying themselves within the context of the contemporary kind of world like what do you hope that your books do for for kids I hope that for indigenous children and young people that they see themselves and or see you know maybe maybe what they see is not their lived experience but maybe their cousins or somebody else in their community and that non-Indigenous children also have a new lens into a different, perhaps, world or lived reality or worldview, so that it 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 has the ability to influence all readers. I think. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, yeah. I think so too. I want to talk about that story where, because I I think you've been able to manifest your own success to a certain degree. I think by actually. Once you had those goals or you, you actually acknowledged the fact that this was, you know, you were, you were a writer, it came out of you. Right. And so Mm -hmm. can you talk about that? The fact that you wrote your book, Tilly, and, and it was 
a beautiful book. And then you found yourself looking for a distributor and, and you, you sort of just mentioned it off the cuff and then things unrolled. Can you talk about that a little bit? For sure. Uh, so the self-published book was called Hope, Faith, and Empathy. Oh, that was the and first, sorry, pardon that me. Was the, no, yeah. that's okay. And I was invited to a church to talk about truth and reconciliation. And this was in 2012 uh, when Hope, Faith, and Empathy first came out. And one of the women there, yeah, she asked me, so what's next for this book? And I said, well, I'd love to find a distributor because I'm going to the post office and mailing it out. It was selling like crazy. Hmm. And she said, oh, well, you know, I have this neighbor and... I think she does something with books. <laughs> so I gave her an extra copy and said, maybe if you run into her, you could give it to her. And a couple of weeks later, I was driving home from our friendship center and I was pulling in to get groceries and I'm listening to CBC and the announcer says, so today we have our, our BC book reviewer on, uh, Nikki Tate. And Nikki, who are you reviewing for us today? And she said, oh, I'm reviewing local author Monique Gray-Smith. <laughs> and my... <laughs> My hands started to shake on the wheel and my eyes welled up and I quickly found a parking spot because this neighbor who happened to do something with books was the BC book reviewer for CBC. So wow. you know, I, I think about that and I think how when we listen to those messages and we follow our intuition or or however people term that that voice that speaks to us about what to do and what not to do. I think when we listen to that, things happen that could have never, I could have never imagined it being reviewed on CBC. And then, unbeknownst to me, Nikki had also sent it to a publisher, and that publisher was Sonoris Press, and that's how Tilly came to be. Mm. I had the privilege to work with an incredible editor, Barbara Pulling, and Tilly came out in 2013, and then a year later in 2014 won the Bird Award. Mm. So it's kind of wild when I think about it, like it's only been seven years since or six years since the first published book came out yes. and that there have been five since then. It's it's like it's been a serious flood. <laughs> yeah, like a like a absolutely. That's incredible, incredible amount of success. And I think I think it's such a valuable thing for people to hear this because whether it's books or whether it's some other creative endeavor that is sort of the fullest expression of yourself, we often have these little voices inside or whatever you want to call it, those, those pebbles or those boulders coming at us. And I think to know that when you actually acknowledge their presence, that you invite them in, that you embrace those ideas so that they don't sort of go and find a new owner, as you say, Mm -hmm. that there's so much value in that. And and I think you you do kind of come closer to that purpose. And I think we're all on some level looking for that meaning making in our own lives. And it's it's pretty powerful to hear somebody else's journey through that. And uh, yeah, I, th- I think it's really, really inspiring. I want well, to... I was, oh, sorry, I go also, ahead. Yeah. Can I just quickly say, I, I do really want to acknowledge my partner because, you know, without her support and without us having, you know, some savings that we could cash in and just her faith that, you know, I wasn't on some kind of mad goose chase <laughs> because it it's taken a, and, you know, selling books in Canada, you don't make a lot of money. Mm-hmm. And so it's taken a long time to kind of build those savings back up. And if I, you know, like I was blessed to have those circumstances for some other people that might not be that they aren't able to just leave their job just yet. 
but they still need, I still encourage them to listen to those messages and block time in the evening or other points to honor the gifts that they've been blessed with and to, and to listen to the messages. Mm, that's powerful too. Cause you're right. I think sometimes, uh, the time scarcity can be a real, a real difficult factor to overcome. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I want to talk a little bit about gratitude. I know that gratitude is a, is a pretty big theme in a lot of the the books that you've written and, mm-hmm. and some of the takeaways. I know that you have some advice around that. What would you say if we could instill a certain amount of, of gratitude into our own practice or our practice as educators or parents kind of reflecting after a night, how might we be able to invite that into, into our everyday? Hmm. I guess I, I always think the more times we can say thank you to somebody for whatever it is, right? Like, thank you for a beautiful day. Thank you for asking me if we could go for a drive. Like, all those little pieces. Thank you for helping me tie your shoe. Thank you for, you know, all those pieces. It's one more way of acknowledging a human's presence, but it has a different vibration than than the simple acknowledgement that somebody is there because we are living in a world where gratitude and thank yous seem to be getting less and less. Mm -hmm. And I just really notice when, when I, when I say it and when I see other people saying like not, not yes, thank you for things, but more thank you for a presence and not the T S presence, but the C E like, thank you for, you know, my daughter, she always likes to watch Hawaii Five-0. I do not like Hawaii Five-0. <laughs> I don't like any of those kind of shows. But it's like, thank you for watching this with me, Mama. Mm. Right? Because it isn't about what's happening so much, but it's about being together and the presence. And and I just want to share really quickly, um, with My Heart Fills With Happiness, that children's book you mentioned earlier, I have had the privilege to read it in grade one classes all across this country this year. And I think that probably at least 40% of all the children, because I read it and then I do a circle asking the children, what fills your heart with happiness? I would say probably 40% Morgan say my family. Mm. And then another 40% probably say somebody in their family, like my mom, my dad, my brother, you know, <laughs> my baby, they have their own baby, right? Like, mm-hmm. it's my baby. <laughs> yeah, it's somebody in their family. And then the other 20% is usually um, like playing hockey, playing soccer, walking with my dog. Rarely, I, I honestly do not remember this whole fall when I've been doing this these readings across the country, any child who has said to me, my Nintendo, Mm -hmm. my Xbox, like, and I, I really wish at times that families would understand that, especially, you know, you and I, I know that this interview will come out later, but you and I are doing this just pretty much on the eve of Christmas. Mm -hmm. And I wish that families would understand that it really isn't about all the things under the tree but it's about the time. And, and I really hear that from the children. Like it's so beautiful when they talk about how much they love, I'm going to choke up about they love their family. <laughs> yeah. 
And that's what, to me, that's what gratitude is about, is that time we have together. And when we speak it and when we acknowledge it and when we honor it, it makes it sacred in ways that we sometimes in our daily lives forget. Mm-hmm. Because it's just like, okay, well, let's get this done or let's do this or let's do that. and Yep. Tick, tick the list off and, and feel the sense of accomplishment and forget the people right in front of you. Yep. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Talk to me about cookie people. I think, <laughs> I think about kindness and I think about the way that, that your family can often be a cookie person. I think that, that uh, that's a really powerful concept when it comes to the people who hold us up and who tie us to what's important in life. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a term. I don't know where I actually got that term from. It came to me when it was a gift one day. Cause I think about it like that when we're with these humans who are like cookie people to us, it is like we've had a cookie, like something really warm and nourishing mm. and their presence is warm and nourishing. And for me, my auntie Ellen was that person and she taught me so much about kindness and about humanity and ultimately, that's why I became a psychiatric nurse, because that's what she did for a living. And that's who she was. She really was a nurse. Like, she helped heal people in ways that medical systems couldn't. But her kindness, her humanity, her love helped to heal people. Uh, I'll just share a quick story about her, about the very first time I saw such a profound act of humanity. She was driving me home from ball practice and it was February. We were living in Kamloops and I was playing competitive uh, softball. So we were practicing in the gym in the winter and we were driving along one of the main streets in Kamloops and there was a woman pushing her cart with all of her belongings in it. And she had sock feet on and no jacket and no toque. And it was cold. It was a cold Kamloops winter day. And I heard my auntie say, oh, there's Bonnie. And so we just pulled over and she said to me, give me your jacket and give me your toque. And, you know, I grew up in a single parent household where my mom worked at Wendy's Hamburgers from 6.30 till 2.30, 6.30 in the morning till 2.30 in the afternoon. And then at the hospital in the kitchen from 3.30 till 7.30. So my winter jacket was a very precious commodity. Mm -hmm. But when your auntie asks you for something, you give it over. (laughs) (laughs) So I give her my jacket, my toque, and she took off her boots and she took off her gloves and she pulled out $20 from her purse. Mm. And this would have been 1980, I guess, maybe 81. So $20 was a lot of money at that time. Mm -hmm. And she got out of the car with all these things and went over and put the jacket on Bonnie and put the toque on, slipped the boots on gave her the gloves and tucked the $20 inside of her shirt Mm. and kissed her on the cheek and got back in the car and we drove off. And I had never, ever seen anything like that before in my life. And she didn't say anything when we got in the car. Like it was like there was no words needed. It was like we take care of each other and that's what we do. And sometimes some of us have more than others. And when we have more than others, then we're responsible to help those who don't have quite as much as we do right now, because you never know when the tables will be turned. Yeah. Oh, that makes me (laughs) teary-eyed. 
I think about your concept of love is medicine and I, I think about your work with resiliency being very profound. I was again brought to tears when you said this, you said, if we've been raised in trauma, it takes incredible resilience to be an optimist. And Mm. I just about fell apart (laughs) when Mm. you said that, because I think it's true. How do you find that kindness? How do you, how do you find hope when perhaps the story has been one of despair or elements of despair? And you acknowledging that is, is just so powerful. And I guess what I'd love to hear, I mean, I, I could talk to you for hours and hours, but what I'd love to hear is what are some elements of, of getting to a place of resiliency, either as, as someone who is standing alongside someone who has experienced trauma or difficult times, or as someone who's experienced it themselves? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I, I'll speak mostly from my own experience. And the, the biggest thing for me was to get outside on the land because being outside, even if it's as simple as a green space on a roof, like if somebody's listening and they're in a condominium downtown Toronto or downtown Vancouver or downtown Seattle, and all they have is a little bit of green space on top of the condo, go up there. Mm-hmm. There is something that happens when we're surrounded by nature or out in the woods or sitting by the creek or by the lake or by the water that alters our cells and in that alteration it gives us hope it i think for me it does anyways it it helps me sort out my next best step Mm. and and that's why I love to be out there because it's like, okay, now I can figure out what I need to do next, especially when I'm pondering, you know, or, or really in those times that, that are low, when the energy is low, when the hope is low, when everything seems a little more difficult, mm-hmm. I need to be out there. And it doesn't have to be for long. It can be five minutes, even just five minutes sitting with the sun on your face can alt for me anyways it alters things hugely Mm, I love that I love that and so even allowing for that space with the like I think about it from an educator standpoint to to give intentional space for that kind of reflection or that ability to connect with nature being an Mm -hmm. important piece Mm -hmm. yeah I know that you talk a lot about about sort of a few guiding principles when it comes to the way that you hope educators will see their role or reflect upon their role. What do you think is something that is an important, uh, like an element that you, you'd love educators to sort of hold in their heart as they're interacting in, uh, with their students and with their teachers and, uh, you know, other fellow teachers and even parents in their midst Oh, well, I think especially with the students that the concept that the educators and the administrators in schools as well are like aunties and uncles and grandparents, because sometimes you in the schools have our kids more time than we do at home. Mm. And so you have a really, really significant role in helping to raise them up. Mm. And, and that isn't only about educating their minds, but also their hearts. 
And I think that 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 is a key is how do we ensure that, you know, we're talking about and visiting and remembering the importance of kindness, of truth, of respect, of honesty, of courage, and, and not just physical acts of courage, but moral acts of courage. Like how do we foster that at a young age? Mm -hmm. Because in that more, in those moral acts of courage, then we create a sense of belonging for people and when we have a sense of belonging, we act differently than if we don't. Oh, that's so profound. That if we have a sense of belonging, we act differently. And I think, you know, I've heard this before, that when a child is acting out, instead of thinking of them as attention-seeking, what if we reframed that and looked at it as connection-seeking, trying mm -hmm. to seek that belonging? And I think, oh, man, there's so much truth to that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So if they feel part of a family, right, like if they feel like there's somebody in the school who is an auntie or an uncle or like a grandparent to them, looking out to them. And the thing is, is that when we have that kind of relationship, then we can give a child or a student feedback that lands in their heart differently, that it then it may not be seen as criticism mm. because it is a relational feedback. Right. But if we're not in relation and if they don't, and I'm not saying revere us like as if we're like something great. But, you know, we have aunties and uncles in our lives and grandparents that, that we revere. And I really hope that every child in every school has somebody in there that they revere mm -hmm. and who gives that back to them that it's reciprocal. That's that cookie person, right, that, that hopefully every student has somebody that is that person for them. And it may may not be at school. Maybe it's a coach. Maybe it's a dance teacher. Maybe it's a piano teacher. Like it could be whomever in the community. Sometimes it is a parent. Um, often it, it is a parent, but often it's somebody else as well, mm -hmm. right? That that doesn't have. Sometimes as a parent, you know, there's different dynamics. <laughs> Um, that's, that's a knowing laugh from both of us. I think <laughs> you have two twins, right? Is that right? 16? Yeah, I have 16 year old twins. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And my kids are five and three and, and definitely the dynamics are alive and well sometimes. So yes, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. And I think that's I think, an honor to like, I think sometimes I get to be that for someone else and, yes. and that's an honor too. And it's an yeah. honor to be able to trust other people with your own children, knowing that they feel they fill a different role than you ever could. And it's a powerful, sure. beneficial thing. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I, I have this dear friend and, and her and her husband were separated and he had started a new relationship. And a lot of people were like, ooh, do you feel okay with the girls going over there? And her response was so beautiful. She said, I think she really loves my girls. Mm -hmm. And the more people who love my girls, the better chance in life they have. Oh, wow. And I was like, wow. Wow. That's evolved. <laughs> exactly. <Yeah. right. laughs> oh, yeah. That's that's powerful. Wow, though. I mean, even that nugget, I think, is just enough of a reframe for somebody who probably might be going through the exact same thing. So mm -hmm. that's beautiful. I know I want to be mindful of your time. I just have a few more questions, if that's for okay. Sure. Okay. I want to talk about reconciliation a little bit. And... I find your, your talk so incredibly hopeful and also 
honest about the fact that we're not there yet. Um, Mm. that this is going to be, this is not an immediate fix, that this is a really long-term conversation. It's an ongoing thing. Um, what's your take on the journey perhaps of what reconciliation looks like and what, yeah, what it might look like in the future and, and what you see for, for the relationship kind of between, between indigenous and and non-indigenous entities, I guess. Hmm. That's a really big question. (laughs) It is really big. It's big. Well, I think that, you know, as, as the truth of this country and the history of this country and as the truth of the United States and, and their journey as well continues to be revealed and unfolded to those who haven't known this history or haven't been impacted by this history, that as that continues to happen, we are going to have highs and lows along the journey, times when there are significant changes occurring and then times when there will be challenges to those changes. Because I remember hearing a couple of years ago, Nigon Sinclair, who is this incredible uh, academic humanitarian gentleman in the, in Winnipeg. He was on the radio, he was on CBC and he said, we have to remember that we've had in this country over 150 years of indigenous people being told through legislation and other ways that they are lesser than non-indigenous people. And we've had over 150 years of non-Indigenous people through the same legislations given privileges and rights and being told through all of that that they are superior to Indigenous people. Mm -hmm. And so what we are working on now is finding a way to an equal balance. And we are nowhere near that yet. Mm -hmm. And there are pockets where we are near that in our country. And there are pockets where we are so far away from that. And I would say that would be the same in the United States. And in Australia and in Aotearoa and New Zealand, there are lots of places in this country that are on similar journeys as our truth and reconciliation journey here. So those would be two things. As people continue to understand the history and its impact, I hope that especially for non-Indigenous people and some Indigenous people, that the stereotypes that they've held and been taught for generations begin to dissipate Mm -hmm. and and that part of that is the moving forward that I hope continues to happen but we also have things in government like in our country we still have a hundred communities on reserve communities that don't have drinking water yeah and that 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 could be a fix that could be you know yes it would cost money but it is a fix and you know we're deemed as one of the most incredible countries in the world and we still have areas of our country that are living in abject poverty yes and without natural resources and without clean drinking water and that i think is actually a shame on our country it is yes. one of the yeah so that would be one thing that could happen really quickly and all of these large multinational companies they have money to fix that Yes. They could take on a community and change that really quickly. Yeah. yeah. So there's actions that people can do. And, you know, if, if educators are wondering, just look at their bookshelves. 
what is represented on those bookshelves? Mm -hmm. Who is represented on those bookshelves? What lived experiences are on those bookshelves? How are those bookshelves fostering a common greater good of humanity? If your bookshelves are mostly dinosaurs, you know, that that quote you gave earlier about less than 1% of all the books released in North America in 2018 had indigenous characters. Well, 27% of them in 2018 had dinosaurs on the cover. Yeah. So we, you know, we've got a long ways to go to look at our common humanity. Sure. And so those are just some simple things that educators could do is, you know, and look in their room. Yeah. How do they create a gentle landing place for students in the morning mm. and themselves? <laughs> yes, absolutely. Well, and I think that's really valid because I think education, it, it can be a really stressful job. And so I yes. think we need to hold space for ourselves and, and find a way to work that into the daily sphere of our lives, right? I think if we don't do that, we neglect ourselves. We simply do not have the juice, the power, the ability to be there for children and hold space for them. Yeah. yeah. Um, briefly, I know you've talked about territorial acknowledgements, and I think quite often uh, it can turn into just simply a tick, you know, getting it done, check the list, and away we go. Um, but that you've talked about there's, there's a way of doing this uh, in a very authentic way, you know, that can demonstrate more reciprocity, you know, for the land. What would you say about the way that we can do territorial acknowledgements, you know, at our staff meetings or these, these governmental sort of events and, and things like that? What, what would you like to see people think about as they do them? Ooh, well, I think whoever's doing them to, to have reflected prior to doing the honoring of the territory and to think about what is it that they love or appreciate about living on these lands that they live on. And, and in that acknowledgement, they can pause for a moment and just say, I, I'd like to invite everybody who's here today to just take, we're going to take 30 seconds or 45 seconds to think about what is it that you're grateful for? What do you appreciate about living on these lands and these waters that have been stewarded by who, whatever the nation is since time immemorial. Mm -hmm. And it just allows a different reflection instead of, like you said, the tick mark. It's like, yeah, what do I, what do I love about living here? What am I grateful for? Mm, I like that. I think it's a good, I think then it would come across differently too. I think it would be more authentic and it would feel <laughs> It would connect people, which I think is part of the, the purpose, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. Before we move on to our very quick rapid fire questions, is there anything, Monique, that you would like to add to our conversation? Mm. Well, you, you mentioned earlier that quote that I often use, that love is medicine. Mm. And I think that's one piece that, that I imagine, like I don't educate in a classroom, but I imagine that every year for educators, there's one or two or maybe three students who are in need of a lot of medicine, uh, especially in the form of love. And, and I hope that as educators that you're able to have ways to restore yourselves so that when those students are needing an extra dose of love, that you're able to give it. Or that there's somebody else in your class who's able to give it. Maybe not you, but maybe you're blessed with EAs who can do that. Or maybe there's other students 
who can do that mm. that that give you know that that reciprocal relationship that that yeah love sometimes is all students need in order to transform and then in that transformation they can learn in a different way than they would have before yeah powerful all right so in just a few words or less (laughs) (laughs) rapid fire what does kindness mean to you Uh, it's a reminder that we're all related Mm. What one skill or superpower should an educator lead with in order to be effective? Self-care. And finally, what one quote or message would you print on one of those quote cups that could be sold in bookstores around the world? Mm, Love is medicine. Mm, Love it. Monique Graysmith, thank you so much for joining me today on Kindsight 101. It's been a delight and such a treat for me. And I know that anyone who hears this will be I think just so inspired and feel a sense of wholeness because of the wisdom that you've brought. So thank you. Much gratitude to you. And yes, it has been a delight. Thank you very much. I want to thank you for the wonderful reviews that you've left for this podcast on iTunes. Your reviews make a big difference in helping other educators find this show. If you think that I'm doing good work here and you'd like others to get inspired and join our 21-day kindness challenge and movement, I'd love it if you would take a minute, head over to iTunes, and leave a review. Thank you so much. This has been another episode of Kind Sight 101, the podcast. For links to resources mentioned in this episode, visit smallactbigimpact.com and click on our podcast and choose this episode number. Now, I'd love to give my audience a heads up about my new book, which will provide ideas, actionable strategies, and inquiry-based approaches to creating kinder classroom through serving the community. Subscribe to my blog for more information. Now, I would love to hear from you. What's the biggest insight that you gain from this conversation? Head over to our website, smallactbigimpact.com, leave a comment on our podcast page, or tag and connect with us on social media with the hashtag smallactbigimpact to share your inspiring story of kindness. Can't wait to hear from you.